Mark 10, 1 through 16. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was the custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child, like, who does not receive the kingdom of God is like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for your steadfast love today. Father, we um, confess ways that we have not been faithful to you that we have uh, forsaken you and chased after far um, less important, far less beautiful, far um, less worthy things, and we have forgotten our first love so many times. And so, God, we come submitting to you today and dependent upon your grace. God, if it were up to our own merit, um, you, would have, you would have stopped loving us a long time ago. But you love us not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And so we sing that back to you. We pray that back to you. We depend on that before you today. That we come to you dependent upon your steadfast love, your faithfulness to us. And we ask that you'll bless the time we have in your word together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I feel like after hearing uh, that passage read uh, for you this morning, I need to acknowledge uh, two elephants in the room. One of them uh, I anticipated. One of them I didn't see coming. It wasn't until Friday that my mind you know, caught up to the calendar and I recognized that as in God's providence, uh, this, the schedule of preaching through Mark would have it, that we would come to essentially what is Valentine's weekend, because Valentine's Day is Tuesday, and that the, the next passage in Mark would be the one where the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce. That feels weird. Uh, to have landed on a, you know, Valentine's Day is not a, not a Bible thing. It's just an American holiday. But uh, Pharisees, you know, this was an important passage, important thing to, to the Pharisees to ask Jesus about. And it just so happens to be Valentine's Day. That was not planned. But it does, it does illustrate a, a commitment we have as Infinity Church. We are not, uh, it is not a law, but our regular habit, our regular diet as a church is we are committed to sequential exposition of Scripture. 
we want to week in, week out, take a, a passage of Scripture and expose it to you. That's what we mean by exposition. This is not man's authority. We show God's authority, God's word to you. And then our regular habit is just to keep taking the next passage one after another. I don't skip ones that are hard. If I did, I would probably would have skipped this one, <laughs> right? But we just take the next passage of Scripture. So that's, that's the first elephant I see. The second elephant that I didn't see coming until Friday when I looked at my watch, I was like, February 12th, wait a second. Anyway, the other elephant I see in the room here on this one is that anytime uh, the subject of divorce comes up, I think we have, just, just mentioning the, the D word, so to speak, uh, puts, puts a finger on a nerve for basically everybody in the room. So I just want to acknowledge that from the beginning. That probably for all of us, I, I'm, not raising for, I'm not asking for a raise of hands. Don't, don't, you don't have to raise your hand. But if I was to ask, who, who fits in the category of either you've been divorced or your parents have been divorced or you have a child who's been divorced or a family member or a close friend that's been divorced, I would imagine basically all of us would have to raise our hands because this is, this is just common and it's always painful. It's always painful. And we're going to talk about the beauty of, of what marriage is. And so anytime that is separated, it is, it is painful. So I just want to acknowledge out, out of the gate here that my job is not to beat you up today. <laughs> my job is not to, uh, to somehow take God's word and use it like a, a hammer over your head. Uh, as, as my buddy Alex Cook would say, uh, sometimes we do place pebbles in people's shoes, you know, some things that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, uh, but our job today is not to, to beat people up. My goal today is that, like every day, every, every Sunday that we come and worship together, the Word of God would convict, but also would show you the beauty of our God, that our, ultimately our eyes would be fixed on Him. And where our lives don't match up with Him, we'd be convicted and we'd be stirred and we'd be drawn to Him but in a way that is both deeply you know, personal, but is also encouraging that our eyes are fixed on Him. So that's, that's my goal today. That being said, those elephants around the idea of divorce, divorce, I don't think, is actually the main point of this passage. It was the question, it was the specifics, but this is not really primarily a passage about marriage and divorce. It's about something at a deeper heart level than that. And so to get you oriented to what I think is really the main point of this passage, 1 through 16, that we've read together, I, I want to give you two different categories, uh, a couple different scenarios uh, for you to imagine, two different categories here uh, of, of groups of people. So the first, I'll give you a handful of scenarios in this first group. Imagine having the role of interviewing somebody for a job. For some of you, that's not a hypothetical. You actually do this on some regular basis where you interview people. But even if you don't, Imagine being that person. You are the job, you're the person who is responsible for interviewing the person across the table. You're looking at their resume, their qualifications, their education, their experience, and your job in that allotment of time is to look at them and say, do you fit what we need? Do you measure up? Does your, does your experience, your personality, uh, every, your skill set, does it match what we need to fill this role? Or, same category but a little different scenario, Imagine being a scout for somebody like an NFL team or Major League Baseball, pick your sport, whatever. And you go to some combine event where, where all these athletes are going to show off their skills. So you've got your clipboard in hand with the, the, everybody that's going to be there. And you've got a, maybe a stopwatch because you're going to measure you know, 40 times or how fast they can run the 60-yard dash or something. And, and you're counting how many times they can, do a, they can bench press a certain amount. You're keeping track of all these things because, again, your job is to evaluate do they fit on our roster? Do I want that person 
on our team. Maybe just one more person, one more scenario kind of in that same category. Imagine having the job of being the admissions counselor for uh, some college or, or university. And you get a stack of applications. And every application has this student's GPA and the classes they took and the extracurriculars they did and, and maybe some, uh, some specific uh, essays they had to write or whatever else it may be that they are saying, here's why I would be a good fit for your school. And your job is to put all these up on a board and you pick this one, this one, and this one. You say, these people, you are accepted to our school. And these people, these people, these people, we do not allow you to come to our school. Imagine being in one of those type roles, interviewing, for, interviewing people for a job, scouting talent for a team, or admitting people to college. That's one category I want to give you. Second category is a little bit different. Imagine being hungry. And not like, you know, lunch is in an hour and you had a light breakfast type hungry. But like, it's been days, multiple days, maybe a week, maybe longer, since you've had a real good meal. Maybe you know that feeling. Maybe you just imagine deep hunger, deep hunger. Or imagine being thirsty. Like, again, not just it's been an hour since you've had a sip of coffee, but maybe you're, you've, got a, you've got a job where you work outside and the, the team, the truck comes and brings your team to a job site, drops you off, you get all set up, and you start working and you realize that the cooler was on the truck that left. But you've got a deadline. You can't stop and, and go figure something else out. And you're going to keep working and working and working. It's 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You haven't had any, and it's hot outside. And you're starting to get dizzy and lightheaded and you've got a headache. That level of thirst. Or maybe one notch higher. You've got chest pains. Different, different scenario. Or somebody you're with. And you realize this, is, this might be a heart attack. And it's like call the ambulance or rush to the hospital. Put you on a bed. Flying you through the doors. Those people, the thirsty, the hungry, the probably having a heart attack, major chest pains, that's a different category, isn't it, than the first category, the first group I gave you. And the first one, if you're an interviewer or a scout or an admissions counselor, you're putting somebody else to the test. You're saying, are you good enough? Do you measure up? Do they meet the standards that we have in place? And the second one, whether you're hungry, thirsty, facing a medical crisis, you're in desperate need of help. You can't fix your own problem. And so you need somebody and something to help you. I give you those two different categories this morning because those different categories and the difference between them, I think, is the essential point of this passage. Because there are two groups of people who come to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, 1 to 16, and they have one of those two different mentalities. And the, the difference between them is a chasm. It is dramatic. And I want to ask you, which are you more like? Which are you more like? Who, how do you come to Jesus? The Pharisees have put themselves in the position of the manager. They're interviewing Jesus to see whether he meets their standards. They have some questions about the way he interprets the law. And I see your resume and things you've done in the past, but i got a test for you. They're the, they're the scout. They've got the, the stopwatch going. They need to, to clock him to see how does he answer this question. They're putting him to the test. They're the admissions counselor saying, I, I see some prophets come and go, and, and, I, and I need to see whether you are, are really who you say you are. Actually, those three examples really fall short 
of the intentions that the Pharisees had. Because the word used for test in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, is the same word that's used in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, where it says that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. Same word there as test, being tempted by Satan. So the Pharisees are playing the role of Satan here. <laughs> not, a, not good company you want to be in. But that's what they're doing. They're coming and they're testing, they're tempting, they're trying to trick and trip up Jesus. Before we dive into the details of that test, I think their approach, their heart level issue is the bigger issue. So take that group and compare them to the next group that comes in the second part of our passage, verse 13 to 16. I think as Mark was compiling this, he wants you to see these together. He wants you to see these different people and the way they approach Jesus. One who comes trying to test. And here's a different group that comes along. We read that there is a group who is bringing children. So we assume maybe their parents or loved ones. And the disciples aren't so happy about it. And so they try to send this group away. Jesus stops them and he invites the children to himself. And he tells them, let, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he says this, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So that begs the question, what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And there are many wonderful, admirable characteristics about our children. So which of these does he, what does he mean about receiving the kingdom like a child? Many of our, our children are, are, are wonderful and kind and smart and caring and compassionate and gentle and humble and trusting and attentive to the way you speak so that if you Mention them being a hassle one week in a sermon. They're going to call you out at lunch. <laughs> what specifically about our children is Jesus talking about that we're supposed to receive the kingdom like them? What does that mean? Is it about their innocence? Is it about their humility? Is it about their eagerness? Is it about their willingness to, to trust people? Well, the word used here for children is a, a word that's a, it's a diminutive. It's a small. It means small children. In fact, the same word is used in Matthew and Luke's Gospels in the first couple chapters where they're describing Jesus' birth. So he's only, you know, from zero to eight days old to a couple days old, you know, or the time of the wise men, maybe a couple years later. Very, very small. In fact, Luke actually uses a different word when he, when he takes the same account of the children coming to him. He doesn't use the word for little children. He uses the word for infants. So like newborns, brand new. That's the word he has in mind here. But the, even, even beyond just the, the, the wording, getting to, to Jesus' heart, what would it be about children that is admirable about the way they come? Because if it's, if it's a merit, if it's something that they do, if it's a virtue that we have to accomplish, let's be honest, after we're like eight, we're not going to be able to do it. What was the point? Well, having the Pharisees next to us helps us see that the, the point is that they are helpless. They are needy. They need help. Jesus invites you to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And what he's telling you is acknowledge that you are helpless. Children are helpless. They cannot help take care of their own needs. They need help. They need somebody to help them. Confess your neediness, Jesus is saying. Admit your dependence upon somebody else. And depend on Jesus. Come to Jesus that way. So do you see how that's different than the Pharisees? The Pharisees are coming clipboard in hand saying, do you measure up? 
The children, with their, you know, as they're being brought by their parents, they're not even bringing themselves. They're being brought, and they're saying, I, somebody on their behalf is saying they need help. It's like carrying somebody else to the hospital, helping somebody else get a drink of water, helping somebody else eat. They need help. And so it is for anybody who wants to receive the kingdom of God. If you want to receive the kingdom of God, you do not come with clipboard in hand evaluating whether Jesus' Jesus's kingdom is going to meet my standards for the kingdom I want to be a part of. No, 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 no. We come saying, I need the kingdom. I cannot get here on my own. I need help. As verse 13 describes these children as they're being brought to Jesus, it says they come and they want that Jesus is going to touch them. And I know, I hear it too, in our twisted, wicked world, that may sound weird to you, but let's just use, always interpret the Bible on the Bible's terms. The word touch is beautiful in the Gospel of Mark. Let me just give you a quick survey backwards Mark 1.41, Jesus touched and healed a leper. Mark 3.10, he touched and healed many. Mark 4, over and over this word comes up as a woman comes and touches the hem of his garment and is healed of a disease she's had for 12 years. By his power and mercy, she is healed. Mark chapter 6, as many who has touched Jesus' cloak were made well. Mark chapter 7, he healed a deaf man by touching his ears. Mark chapter 8, Jesus had touched a blind man's eyes twice and it healed him. Ten times the word, is the word touched has been used up to this point, and every single one of them, a healing takes place. When Jesus is surrounded by these children and they're coming to be touched, they're saying, I need to be healed. Not physically. We don't have any record of these children having some kind of physical deformity or illness or sickness. They have a need for a blessing, a need for salvation, a need to experience the Savior. Verse 16 says, at the end, he says, Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them as he was laying hands on them. We hear echoes of the way we read the, the patriarchs in Genesis. Every time the next generation would come along, the end of his life, uh, uh, you know, Isaac or Jacob would, would gather their children and they'd put their hands on them and bless them. It's a sign of the, the God's blessing, God's favor being passed on to the next generation. So here it is, Jesus is the great patriarch, the great God himself, and he's passing along a blessing a beautiful picture of love and compassion and provision for the next generation. So let me ask you, is that how you come to Jesus? Do you come desperate and needy for a blessing? Do you come asking for Him to heal you? Do you come asking for help? Or do you come to test? A little child, uh, one, one commentator, James Edwards, says this, a little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives it by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than any merit inherit in him or herself. Only empty hands can be filled. I like that. Only empty hands can be filled. filled. What, what's in your hands? Are you presenting something to Jesus? You're saying, here's all the things I got to give to you. Here, here's, here's who I am. Here's what you need from me. Or, or I got all this stuff. Do you, want to, do you want to add on? I got this pile here. I think there's space for you over here. Uh, we got empty hands. I, I need you. I need you. That's the posture of a child. Many of us have this bent. I know I do. I got this bent toward I want to prove myself. I want to prove myself by my next day, my next action, my next step, my next good deed. This is going to say that I'm, I'm worth it. I'm somebody. That's my bent. And so when I come to the children, I'm like, yeah, children, they are, they're eager. They're trusting. 
you know, they're humble. All that is true. All those are admirable. And we appreciate that about our kids. But Jesus is telling his disciples, it's not about how good they are. It's what they lack. They lack help. They need help. They need help. Truthfully, if we all had to become like a child in the way that they are trusting and eager and humble, we, we, the disciples are proving that we would never get there. These guys were walking with Jesus day by day, and they have missed it over and over again. These, he's, not, he's not looking at a group of, of disciples who are childlike in the sense of being you know, humble and all those things. These are, are, are prideful people. They, they are skeptical. They're slow to learn, slow to grow. If we had to become like eager children who are just so, you know, trusting, we would, we would never make it. And even more than that, Jesus, Jesus if we interpret it that way, that they, we had to do something like children, then we would be saying Jesus is preaching a way of earning your salvation. And that's not true. You can't earn it. You just receive it. You can't do something to gain it. You just receive God's blessing. Instead, we have to see that Jesus is complimenting that they're needy, they're helpless, and we are to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Receive it in the sense of saying, I need this. I need God. Something similar Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you recognize your neediness? Do you recognize your empty-handedness? If so, come to God that way. Notice the disciples, they rebuke the children for coming this way. And that is a strong word. That word shows up in Mark when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and gets the whole thing to be still. It also comes up most of the times when there's an exorcism. They speak to demons this way and make demons flee. This is a strong word. And the ironic thing is, you remember back a few weeks ago, the disciples couldn't rebuke the demons. They, they failed at that. And here they are rebuking people for bringing their children to Jesus. Like, they've really got their priorities messed up here. Jesus is furious. He is indignant with them. Another strong word. He said, you, you've missed it. You've missed it. The disciples, they, they don't see their own neediness, and they don't see that Jesus loves needy people. Jesus loves people who recognize they are needy. They don't want to, Jesus is, uh, the disciples are saying, oh, Jesus, he's, he's too busy. He can't be burdened by you, you people that have all these needs. Jesus says, no, that's exactly who I came for. I came to heal the sick. I came for the broken, for the poor, for the destitute. I came for the least of these. We are not the Savior, so we can't carry everybody's needs. But there is a heart position here of loving the needy. The disciples missed. The disciples missed it. Do you see neediness as a handicap? Or do you see neediness as an opportunity to receive help from Jesus? An opportunity to experience blessing. Take how Jesus, how the children came to Jesus, and now go back up and read the Pharisees, how they come to Jesus. They come not needy, but testing. Clipboard in hand, stopwatch at the ready, eager to see whether Jesus meets their standards. And they hope to trip him up with a question about the law. They want to get his answer and then accuse him one way or the other for being either too strict or or, or too you know, lenient on the law. They want, to, they want to try to trip him up one way or the other. They, say, they want to be able to say, see, yeah, here's Jesus, why he's bad. Stop following him because he messed up on this question. The same attitude can be common for us today, can it not? We come to Jesus with an agenda and say, look, look how Jesus is messed up here. He, he doesn't, he's not with the times. Do we come Jesus, 
to test him or to trust him. We're slow sometimes to let Jesus test us and challenge us. We come looking at him saying, do you match the times? Do you match the way things are supposed to be? We should come like a children, seeing him for who he is. Jesus' question specifically from the Pharisees is around the issue of, of, of divorce and marriage. And so as we, again, I, as we recognize this specific issue and the sensitivity to it, I also recognize now everybody's married, and that's okay. First Corinthians, I mean, uh, yeah, First Corinthians 7 and the examples of Jesus and Paul themselves, two of the most influential people in all the world history, were single. So it's, that's an okay thing. And so some of you are nowhere near the age of marriage, and you're not thinking about marriage. But having a biblical view of marriage is important for all of us, because all of us interact in this world on a day-to-day basis, and all of us need to know what the Bible says about marriage, whether or not that's specific to your day-to-day life right now. The Pharisees' question seems to be a, a contemporary issue of the time. Herod, the, one of the people put in place by Rome, uh, who was a king, he had divorced his wife and married his brother uh, Philip's wife. And so John the Baptist had publicly uh, called him out for this, and Herod had him beheaded for it. You can read that earlier in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's chapter 6 or so. And so as the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, this is kind of like a headline topic. You know, it's like taking anything that the Supreme Court decides and you're kicking around, kicking around at work. That's kind of what they're doing here. They're bringing up the common topic of the day. And they might have been thinking, hey, if we get him to say the wrong thing, maybe we can get him sent like John the Baptist and have him beheaded. I don't know that, but that's, that's a possibility. The Pharisees, uh, Jesus in classic form answers their question with a question and says, what does the law say? The Pharisees reference Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we'll come back to that. And Jesus essentially says after that, yes, you're, you're right to go back to the Old Testament, to the law, but let's go back even further than Deuteronomy, and let's go back to the very beginning of creation. So let's now, let's us, take his words and dive into what, what does he say about marriage? And again, our, our heart position here is what matters, but our heart has real life implications. You know a tree by its fruit, so if you claim your heart is one way, but then the fruit doesn't match it, then... It's evidence that something's mis- mismatched here. So the heart condition is the most important. What is, what is your heart condition when it comes to Jesus? Are you trusting Him or are you testing Him? Are you receiving from Him or trying to see if He measures up to your standards? Here's a test case. What do you think about marriage and divorce and remarriage? That's the, the issue on the table. So as we come to Jesus, He comes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, like the very first page of your Bible. And in doing so, we also recognize that he's quoting from before Genesis 3, which is when sin entered the world, which is a way of freeing you up to say, nobody's going to measure this perfectly. <laughs> like the, Jesus, I mean, God gave these commands, and then a chapter later, we fell. So we not, we're not, all of us are going to be under the, the weight of this, of not measuring up. And yet, this beautiful picture is God's standards for a reason. It's for a reason. So it's worth It's worth seeing the beauty of it. It's worth pursuing it together. God's grace doesn't mean that we just throw his standard of holiness out the window and say, oh, it doesn't matter how you live. No, no, no. It does. But we are saved by grace so that we can follow him in holiness. Jesus quotes Matthew chapter, I mean Matthew, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 saying, God made them male and female. So interesting that Jesus, when he's going to talk about marriage, in order to, or the question was about divorce, and he's going to go back to marriage. And before he goes back to marriage, he's got to go back even further to gender. Do you follow that progression? That's what he's going to go for us today. God created us in one of two distinct genders. 
from science, we know that those genders, your, your gender is determined at the moment of conception, which is remarkable. But that is so early in our, in our uh, who coming into uh, being. God created both male and female in his image. So that means there's not one gender that more reflects God's glory than the other. We are equally created in his image. Equal value, equal worth. Male and female both created in his image. And in our equalness, we are distinct. We are different. And we are complementary. Meaning we are not the same. We're not interchangeable. We are distinct and different. Gender is a gift given by God. Praise God that he created us as different. There is good news in that. And of course, our, our culture, we want to add all kinds of things about what it means to be man or female and say, well, you, you know, if you're man, you got to do these kind of hobbies and woman, you got to do these kind of hobbies. And we, we can add stuff onto that and we got to kind of declutter through that sometimes. But that doesn't mean that the distinction is, is irrelevant. It matters and it's a good gift of God. A biblical view of gender is not popular in our culture today to say that these are distinct and God-given. And so, if we come into the world with different views of gender, then we've got to come to Jesus and say, am I going to test Him or am I going to submit to Him? Am I going to receive the goodness of grace or am I going to put Him to the test and say, oh, His ways are outdated. We come and we receive this. Just as many of us may need grace and patience later on down the road here as we go down gender and marriage and divorce, as you're interacting with people, if people need grace here on this one, it's okay to be patient, to hold firm to a biblical view of gender, but also to be loving and kind. The standard doesn't change as people's hearts and minds and culture changes, but it's good for us to be gracious. The next piece of creation that Jesus describes to us in verse 7 is the leave and cleave out of Genesis chapter 2. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. A critical part of the, the health of a marriage is that it is a transition where a man and woman are no longer, they are, they are in a sense separated from the original household family and now brought into a new family as the primary relationship. Not that the relationship ends with the, with the, with the birth family, but that it is no longer primary, is no longer the, the main part of their relationship. And I like this description. It says, to hold fast to his wife. Hold fast to his wife. This is a word that means to adhere closely. Be faithfully devoted. I started looking for this word in other places in the Bible. This is my favorite one. 2 Samuel 23.10 describes a warrior who fights all day long against the Philistines. And it says he fought so long that his hand clung to the sword and he held, he, like he held fast to it. And he, he couldn't let go of it. He couldn't let go of it. His hand is stuck to that sword. Are you, are you stuck to your spouse? Are you holding fast so much so that you can't, you can't pry your fingers off? You're holding fast to your spouse. Same words used in the way we, our relationship with the Lord. Uh, Joshua 23, Joshua commands his people to cling, is how the ESV translates it there. Cling or hold fast to the Lord your God. Again, Psalm 23, I mean, uh, 73, 28. But for me, it is good to be near to be near to God, to hold fast to God. He said, I've made the Lord my refuge. Hold fast to your spouse. Cling to your spouse. Be devoted to her. Don't let him go. Hold fast. Leave and cleave. That's a picture of marriage. The unity that then comes is possible because of that. The separation from the past and a cleaving to the current. In verse 8, two times we read this phrase, one flesh. Jesus quotes again from Genesis 2. 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul is preaching on marriage, quoting from this same passage in Genesis chapter 2 that we heard from earlier, he says, No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. The marriage bond is, is so close, it's like your right arm or your whole right side of your body or something. It is a, a, a unity that is so, so close that we nourish and cherish it. Your own physical body, you, you, don't, you don't abuse half of it. You, you take care of all of it. You take care of your, your, your hunger needs, your physical needs. You want to be in good shape. You, you care for your body because it is you. And marriage is that close. It's meant to be that close of a bond. Just as you want to physically get stronger and healthier and take care of yourself, so it is in marriage. Two becoming one flesh it is both the hardest thing, or one of the hardest, I guess we'll just say, one of the hardest things in marriage and one of the greatest joys in marriage. Is it not? Because there is a, a, a depth and a unity that comes that is only possible because of how close you are. It is living an entire life oriented toward another. Living our whole lives. You don't take breaks. The hand is stuck to the sword. You're not letting go. You don't take breaks. Your whole life is oriented toward another. And there is a, there is a weight to that, a gravity to that, of living life that is united or yoked to another person. So wh whether you feel like it or not, if you're married, you're married today and tomorrow and yesterday and so on. Like you, th there is a, a, a weight to that. Is the ultimate loving of your neighbor, which is never easy. And the hardest part is that the neighbor's not on the other side of the fence. They're just on the other side of the bed. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a, a heaviness to that. And at the same time, there is a deep joy to that. Because one of our, our absolute deepest desires of our hearts is to be known. We long for somebody to know us, to truly see us for who we are, and to accept us, to be willing to be unified with us, even though they see us, to be seen and to be known. And marriage is an opportunity for that. Friendships can be this. The Bible is very high on friendships. A friendship can have this deep, deep level of intimacy and care and compassion for one another. And that's essentially a central, a central component of marriage is friendship. It's seeing each other at a deep level and knowing and loving and persevering and caring all the way through it. There is a depth that only grows over time, is there not? As we see one another, care for one another, have joy with one another, bless one another. Marriage, of course, all, all falls short in the, the one flesh uh, ideal here. We, we should care for our spouse as much more than we do care for ourselves. And yet, that very moment of failure, I think actually, is where the beauty of marriage really shows up. Because here's what happens. In God's incredibly gracious design of marriage, we get to experience the gospel when your spouse messes up or when you mess up. And here's what I mean by that. You took some oaths, some vows. If you got married, you took some vows. And if you stuck with the traditional language, you, you may have changed it around, but this is essentially what you said. You said something like, I take you to be my well, wife or husband, to have and to hold... From this day forth, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. And to this I pledge my faith. You made some kind of promise like that 
before God. And you know what's happened probably pretty soon is that you experienced more poverty than wealth, times of sickness, not always times of health, times of, of hardship, times of for worse, not just for better. And in that very moment of not going well, of sin, of hardship, what, what happens? Do, do, do you leave? Possibly, and that's probably painful. But when you stay, you know what happens? You experience the grace of God. You know what Jesus did when we rebuked Him? When we were for worse toward Him? When we were poverty in poverty with Him? When we were putting Him in a place of not going well? He stayed. He stayed. So here's the beauty of the gospel in marriage. God has joined you together. Let not man separate. Let not man separate. After quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus adds this commentary. It's like Jesus has been taking this through and then he, he, he adds his own two cents to what marriage is. And he says this, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And what he's pointing to is the same thing that Paul points to again in Ephesians chapter 5. He says here in verse 32, uh, he says in, in Ephesians 5, 32, this mystery is profound that I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What we experience in marriage is a living, breathing example of the way Christ loved us. That He didn't forsake us when things got hard. He was willing to go to the cross for us. He was willing to die for us. God doesn't give up on us when we deserve His punishment. God doesn't stop loving us or forsake us every time we get poor or sick or struggle or sinning. The gospel is that God loved us while we were sinners. That is the good news. And God has designed marriage to reflect that, to be a mirror to the world and to one another of that. And so it's in, within that context that this, we get this description of marriage and why Jesus says it's so important. Because God's put it together. So he says, don't separate it. God brought you together. Do you, do you realize if you're married that God put you together? Like you, as you tell your story about how you came together, you know, you probably got a, a, a you know, story about how you first met and then you got a, a first date story and then you got, you know, progression and who wanted to get married first. And there's, you know, the, the doing the dance of like, you know, should we, should we, you know, what, how are we going to do this? Then there's the proposal and there's the wedding planning and there's the, 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 the wedding itself. Everybody's got that story. You know what, really, this, that, that's, the, that's the, the ground level view of, that, of your story. You know what the God level view of that story is? God did this. <laughs> do you believe that? In all your craziness, all your messed upness, all the, the mess we've got, God put you together. What a gift. What a gift. God joined you together. Jesus, doesn't answer, Jesus does answer the, the Pharisees' technical question. They're asking about divorce. And Jesus gets to that. He says, that's not good. That's not God's intention. It is unlawful. It is against God's design. God brought you together. So don't separate it. That's his answer. As the disciples come closer to him, a repeated theme in Mark, where they come in a little closer, frequently inside a house, to get more details. And here's what happens. He says, he gives them even more. Verse 11, 12, divorce and remarriage, he says, is a form of adultery. Again, a very unpopular teaching of Jesus to think about. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
There are some who perhaps see the pain of that and have turned from that, have repented, have acknowledged that sin and said, that's not how God intended. And I've sinned against God. And we come and we repent and we find grace. But perhaps there's others who have said, I, I don't like that teaching of Jesus. And I know deep down Jesus just wants me to be happy. And so I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. But let's be really careful. Because if we define our, our, our theology around what we want to be happy, then we're the Pharisee with a clipboard. We're defining truth according to our definition and saying what's deep, what really matters. And here's, the, here's the, the good news with that, is that your deepest joy isn't going to come by us deciding what's right and wrong. Our deepest joy is going to come by submitting to the one who's the creator of the world. We so often think, I know what's good for my heart. But we don't. Jesus does. Marriage is God's foremost illustration of the gospel in human relations, so He has the right to determine what's good and bad, what's going to work and what's not. And sometimes there's a hardship there that we say, this, this is my past and I want to get past it, but we want to submit to God. So it's okay for there to be a little bit of rock in our shoe today. Say, yeah, I don't like that teaching. I don't like that. That's okay. That being said, I do think it's worth acknowledging. can zoom out from Mark a little bit to take a quick biblical survey. Matthew chapter 5 makes an exception. Jesus does an exception for divorce in the case of ground, on the grounds of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 7 makes an exception for divorce in the case of one person being a believer and the other person not being a believer. And so people differed there on, on what you take after that. I, I, along with many others, would say, hey, if the divorce was on biblical grounds, then it is possible to have a, a remarriage because the divorce was biblically permissible. It can be another marriage. However, many times it's still not advisable or good or healthy. There can be lots of dangers there. 1 Corinthians 7 also makes it clear that uh, remarriage is possible after the death of a spouse. That's a biblical reason for a second marriage. So it's okay if personally you've got to dive into the nitty-gritty a little bit on the details. That's what the Pharisees were going to, to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which was this really complicated few verses about a really specific situation that they're referencing where Moses allowed uh, a divorce. But the whole here again, is our heart. What's the condition of our heart? Is our heart condition saying, I'm going to test God or I'm going to submit to God and say, God, I need His help. And there is probably no place more that we need help than with our most intimate of human relationships, marriage. Listen, if you've been married more than a day, you know you need help. I need help. Lots of help in marriage. And there is a, a brokenness that comes that, that this deep human relationship, that we, we are knitted together at such a deep level that any, any pain in there, whether it be sin or death or just hardship or struggle, it, it, it rips at the very core of our identity. And can we just all admit we're there? All of us have pain right there, the deepest part of who we are. Because of this human relationship, maybe it's you've wanted to be married and you haven't been married. Maybe you were married, but it was only for a short time. Maybe there's a remarriage and complication with kids and all this. There is a, a deep, deep hurt here for so many of us. And you know what? It's good news if you can acknowledge it. Because then you can be like a child who comes to Jesus with empty hands and admits, I don't have this all together and I need help. That's the whole posture we're looking for. The only hands that can be filled are ones that are empty. That's the only way it can be filled. 
We are needy children. And the brokennesses, brokennesses? Sure. In our marriages and in our relationships and in our kids, the deepest part of, of, our, of our deep relationships we have, that shows just how needy we are. But you know what the good news is? People can't keep you from Jesus when you're needy. No disciples, no matter how rebuking they want, how much they want to rebuke you, they're going to get an indignant response from Jesus. Because you know who Jesus loves? Needy people. He loves people who say, I need help. Like the man with the boy with the son experiencing seizures. I believe, help my unbelief. Here are children who come with nothing to offer Jesus. And he welcomes them in his lap. And he says, I love you. And he blesses them and he encourages them. If you feel some, some brokenness, come to Jesus. Some of us don't feel the brokenness we should. There's some sin we need to repent of, some past, some hurt, some anguish, things we've done wrong, people we've wronged, that we need to go back and repent of, that we're holding on to that. The sin you're holding on to is, is in your hands, so your hands aren't empty. You've you got to give it to Jesus and say, I've got to confess this to Jesus. I've got to make some wrongs right. But the good news is that you can come with empty hands and come to Jesus and find help because He loves needy people. He loves needy people. We all need to receive the kingdom of God like children. And when we do, God just might give us an opportunity, whether it be in friendship or in marriage, to have a deep human relationship that can mirror and reflect the glory of God. In a wedding ceremony, there are, there are two sets of vows. I already referenced the one that the husbands and wives say to one another. But earlier in the ceremony, at least in traditional ceremonies, ceremonies I lead, the spouses don't face each other. They face forward toward the minister, and they answer some questions. This is where the answer is going to be, I do. And the reason you do that in a ceremony is that you are making those promises not horizontally, to one another, you're making that promise vertically to God. You're facing forward and saying, this is, this is who I am. This is, this is what I'm promising to do. So if you have recognized your, your neediness and in God's grace, He has put a, a marriage in that hand, a relationship of one flesh union in that hand, then here's your response today. You promise to love, honor, cherish, protect, respect, and forsake all others, holding only on to them forevermore. I do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible grace, your incredible mercy, the ways that you have given incredibly generous, good gifts to us like the gift of marriage. Father, we confess ways that we have forsaken this relationship, that we have not honored it, we've not treasured it, we have polluted it, we have hurt people, and we have been hurt by it. Father, I pray especially right now over those that have been hurt, those that are grieving, those that have so much pain because of a marriage relationship, either lost or forsaken, and I pray that you would bring comfort and peace right now. God, thank you that you have called us, the church, your bride, 
that our earthly marriages, as beautiful and wonderful as they are, they are only temporary. That one day we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we will be wed to you forever. That all of our longings, all of our pains will be taken care of and washed clean and we will be united to you forever. And that all the shadows of this world will be fulfilled and we will be with you and we'll have fullness of joy. God, thank you for the hope that's out there before us. Father, I I pray that as we wait and anticipate that day, we would pursue you and your standard and your holiness, not as a way of earning our status before you, but as a way of delighting and following you and delighting in being one of your children. God, we confess where our hearts are broken and prideful. May we come as helpless children today, receiving grace and finding mercy to help us in our times of need. I ask all this in Jesus' name.